We're in uh, Joshua 8. I call this GI, God's intelligence, versus AI, the city, which is not very good intelligence on the part of the Israelites as they took them on the first time. They got beat. And, of course, uh, also Achan was discovered of stealing the silver and the gold. And they were, of course, they failed to take the city and some of the men got killed and Achan and his family are taken outside and stoned to death. So now you have Joshua. And I would say he would be a bit discouraged a little bit what has taken place and it's a uh, it's a strange strange chapter because it, ha- it and there's a lot of really beautiful things in this chapter it's rather long it's 35 verses so i guess we better get started if we did a minute each verse <laughs> we could get out of here in 10 minutes beforehand yeah we can't do a minute before. <laughs> I'm not sure if I should say good luck or... <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway, you got to like this. Do not fear or be dismayed. That came straight from the Lord. Does He ever tell you that? Don't be discouraged. Don't fear. Don't be dismayed. And... Uh, That's how God ministers to His servant Joshua here as we look at it tonight. Satan uses one of his best instruments called discouragement. Mm -hmm. And uh, he can uh, put out that whoopee stick of discouragement on us quite frequently, can't he? Will it do some damage? What's that? Sure does. Fear and discouragement. And that's exactly what has to be happening here. The reason why God says, do not be dismayed, do not fear, don't be discouraged. And then He promises victory over the city that just beat Him. Right? There's some other uh, factors that go on here that are really kind of interesting. It's an interesting chapter. We know who wins. Obviously, we know that the Israelites beat AI as they uh, take them on a second second time, I guess you could say. It's like God is saying, um, oh, let's try this again. <laughs> yeah, this time with mine. This time yeah. with me. <laughs> yeah. this, this is mine, guys. Let's, uh, let's go do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for who you are and what you do for us and uh, you are the God that encourages us constantly through your word we know that it's truth we know that we need to be encouraged constantly and we are taking on battles battles that sometimes seems like we're losing but you're always there you are the victor you are the conqueror the battle is yours we just desire to follow where you are taking us in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's verse 1. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you, 
Arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given them into your hand, the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. There we go. (laughs) Isn't that great? There it is. He's telling them, hey, we've got this. And it's time to do it. Go now. Go to the city Ai. I'm going to give it to you. You know, it's uh, indeed. I'm going to give this in right into your hands that you will conquer the, the whole city of Ai. It's, it's a relatively small city compared to maybe Jericho or other places they could take on. But yet, we, we've already seen whenever you see a small place and you take it in the sense of having way too much confidence and not really trusting in the Lord what happens. So, we move on here. Um, you should do to Ai and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king. You should take only its spoil, its cattle, its plunder, and yourselves. Set an ambush in the city behind it. So Joshua rose with all the people of war to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 men, valiant warriors, sent them out at night. He commanded them, saying, See, you are going to ambush the city from behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and when they come out to meet us at the first, we will flee before them. They will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say, They are fleeing before us at the first, so we will flee before them. And you shall rise from your ambush, take possession of the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. That's a key phrase there, isn't it? (laughs) Then it will be when you have seized the city that you you shall set the city on fire. You shall do it according to the word of the Lord, according to his direction. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them away. They went to the place of ambush, remained between Bethel and Ai, on the west side of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Now Joshua rose early in the morning, mustered the people, got them all together, went up with the elders of Israel before the people to Ai. Then all the people of war who were with him went up, drew near, and arrived in front of the city, camped on the north side of Ai. Now there was a valley between him and Ai. And he took about 5,000 men, set them in the ambush between Bethel and Ai, on the west side of the city. So they stationed the people, all the army that was on the north side of the city, its rear guard on the west side of the city, and Joshua spent that night in the midst of the valley. It came about when the king of Ai saw it, that the men of the city hurried, rose up early, went out to meet Israel in battle, he and all his people, at the appointed place before the desert plain, but he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. And all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. They pursued Joshua drawn away from the city. So not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who had not gone out after Israel and they left the city unguarded and pursued Israel. Quite a, quite a section, you know, the whole battle plan is really just laid out there. It's all from God, and this battle is His, right? He's, he's commanding them how they're going to do it. Um, pretty large army this time. How many are in it? Oh, we know that. For one group, it's 30,000 there, isn't it? 
Then we see 5,000. Uh, about the size of uh, Jeff City, somewhere in there. <laughs> it's pretty good, a large army against a place of maybe 10, 12,000. Hmm? <laughs> Probably about 3 to 1 as the outnumbered. How are they going to the Joshua Joe. The livestock if they're going to burn the city. Catch a couple houses on fire. They'll just, uh, yeah. Though. I mean, the livestock are going to burn the city. Josh was telling them yeah. to burn the city, but God said they could take the stuff. Spoil yeah. of the, the cow. Yeah. The livestock probably isn't where the housings are. They're probably somewhere <laughs> off. You know, yeah, and the fields are. So maybe they have like a marketplace and stuff. God said they could take the stuff too and put it in the treasure. Spoil and his livestock. Well, hey, how did he command them to go? Huh? How he had commanded it the first time when he messed up. Put it in the treasure, the stuff they were supposed to take. Well, they said they could. Yeah. Think they're the elect cattle. <laughs> well, they so he's going to protect them. It's like, <laughs> like he does. He protects us. One building on fire. You leave another alone. <laughs> <laughs> you don't set one building on fire. You don't set them all on fire. <laughs> Just get a couple of fires going to let them know that, hey, your kingdom's on fire. <laughs> yeah, well, they, uh, the armies are all out of the city when they do this. And they got a lot and of people. They can just go and take what they yeah, want. They, whatever it is. Oh, there's the cattle there. Yeah. They're in the barns or whatever. Leave them. Don't leave that alone. Because it says they have 30,000 men with them. Like, Joshua shows 30,000 mighty, mighty men of valor. And sent them out by night, and then he just took right. five thousand with him to go and be like a right. decoy. Right. So they so got a bunch of guys. Yeah, they got a ton of people, and no one was in the city or the women and children. Yep. You know, sorry. Are they going to kill them? <laughs> <laughs> are they going to kill all those people? Yeah, that's, mm -hmm. that's what they did. Yep. Jericho. Yep. Jericho. Yep. Sure. Uh, spies, you remember? You know, they came back, reported that was you know relatively small place. It'd be to take, remember that, right? So this time God gives the battle plan to Joshua exactly how it's going to go down. Uh, you have uh, 30,000 to the north of the city, 5,000 to the west of the city, and those 5,000 are going to lure the people, or the army, out of the city there. <laughs> so uh, it's a good, good plan by God here, isn't it? <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, the men of Ai saw the people of Israel to the north, and so they come out of the city. And I think that they have a lot of confidence right now. Yeah, they do. <laughs> They're feeling really good about this. All right, we can take them, guys. We've already done it. Let's go do it. That's right. They're saying all, all of the people of Bethel and Ai. Uh huh. Yeah. That other, and Bethel is is pretty close to there, and so they're going to try to unite <laughs> with AI. They know each other, and take them on. And of course, Bethel is going to be wiped out too, just like these guys. <laughs> kind of a pair. <clears throat> so what we have here is that they're feeling good about themselves. And uh, the the men of Joshua, they're coming from the west, and um, or what is it? Uh, the the other group captures the city, sets it on fire, right? As the uh, the other part 
And the other side then had was on the run to get, just to get out of there to get those guys to start following them. And so now all of a sudden they look back and what do they see when they look back at their city? It's on fire. And they realize what has happened. Well, what should they do? Should they go back? But if they go back, they're on the run. And the army there that they came to attack is right there. And so, you know what? They're caught in between. A rock and a hard place it is. And so, nice plan by God, isn't it? Okay, these guys have a warfare going, and of course they have weapons, so let's take it to today, to us. We have weapons of warfare, don't we? How good are they? Well, they're not carnal, but they're spiritual. They're mighty through God. They pull down strongholds. Our weapons are incredible. We have been equipped. And uh, they come from the land of strongholds. God's strongholds, anyway, uh, far superior. And God has used them with His army for over 2,000 years, as far as the church is concerned. And they're weapons that have conquered, and they still conquer. They continue to conquer. Uh, doesn't look like it sometimes, does it? But we're winning. We're engaged in a war. It, uh, you know, war's bloody. It's not not a pretty thing. But uh, Paul talked about weapons. He talked about the weapons that we have. I like Second Corinthians chapter ten, verses uh, three through six. It's good to be reminded what we have been. E- with. Well, can you read 3 through 6 there on chapter 10? This is about the spiritual war. Um, chapter 2? Chapter 10. 10, um, ten 3 through 6. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Like this section. This is war. This is what it's about as we live here. And our first war is right here. It's the flesh. It's us. This is what we wage war against every day. And uh, what we do is try to take down the fortresses that we build up, you know, the sin that we uh, have, temptations, and we want to destroy them. Uh, speculations, you know, the, the thinking that would be of worldly thinking and lofty things that's against the knowledge of God or goes against the Word of God. We want to destroy that kind of thing, don't we? Destruction. Take every thought captive. 
then also, this is a great witnessing uh, section here because when we realize the, the weapons that we have are stronger than any kind of missiles, any kind of uh, weapons that the modern armies have today because it destroys the thinking that the world has. It can cut right through it because the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts through all those lofty speculations, all of the ideas that man has and comes up with that is against the knowledge of God and against Him. We can actually take captive those thoughts when we come back and deliver those mighty arrows of truth to uh, people that uh, say stupid things. Sometimes, if they're really listening, they'll go, ooh, you got, got a point there. You know, sometimes they won't admit it. But a lot of times, if you deliver the truth to them, they don't have anything else to say. You know, they can argue all they want, but they don't have anything that can take on God's Word. We want to destroy all the uh, disobedience and punish it, don't we? And God's weapon, His Word, does that. Just leave them stranded out there with nothing. No more of those kind of thoughts and that kind of uh, lifestyle and whatever that they do. Divinely powerful, it says, for the destruction of fortresses. I remember when there was a... I think Ken Ham had... Uh, teaching one time, and it probably still does, you know, several of these books. I remember seeing these pictures. They were kind of done in cartoon form, but they're, you know, like, you've got this fortress here, and it's made of rocks. You know, rocks upon rocks. And on the other side, it's got rocks. You know, but the one who has the truth is firing against that other one that is false, and has errors, and all of a sudden you start seeing it crumble. You know, that other fortress starts crumbling down because it's not a powerful kind of rock. It doesn't have the strength to it. And it starts breaking it down as those mighty arrows of the Word of God hits it. Those are those fortresses. We're destroying that. So anyway, that is uh, it's quite a great thought, the weapon that we have, the Word of God with the Spirit of God. Sometimes we may feel weak as you know, I'm not here to argue, but we do present truth and we proclaim it, don't we? Just in, uh, offering the gospel is putting on, uh, putting out the uh, warfare, and of course, a lot of people do not like that. But um, it's truth in it. How about Ephesians chapter six? Oh, we know this one too. Six ten. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And then it says, "Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil." Remember, we were saying that he loves to discourage. What else does he like to do? Bring fear to dismay us. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, powers, world forces, the darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And then he starts off the next verse with what? Stand firm. Therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And then he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And there he's talking about praying for uh, the church. <clears throat> Any kind of uh, warfare that we'd be involved with. But that is definitely how we fight, isn't it? It's how we win. If we're not... Uh, putting on this armor the armor really is putting on Christ then we will be defeated Hebrews 4.12 I just said this one earlier but that's uh, again about the, uh, the sword Pretty far back there, isn't it? Near the end. (laughs) For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Remember in 2 Corinthians where it talked about the lofty speculations and, you know, the ideas of mankind. And then, you know, there it is right there. That's what the Word of God does. It comes in and just, you know, divides it into places where you wouldn't think it could even get. Anyway, that's the Word of God and all of its power. Look at Matthew sixteen eighteen. This is how we win, isn't it? <laughs> it's the God's God's way of taking on the enemy. I say to you, Peter, and upon this rock, this confession of faith that you've just said, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So that means going into the places that would be considered, you know, like Hades. Hades doesn't come around with its gates and try to whammel the church in that sense. It's saying, we're going in there and we're taking it off. That's kind of the idea. The, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. We will we'll go on in. 
the keys of the kingdom of heaven that you have, the, the gospel. So people are proving that because people make up the church. 2,000 years, the church is still here. <laughs> and it's because it continues to bring people out of the, um, I guess you could say, the prison of, of uh, captivity that they're in, and sin, and bringing from death to life. And that's exactly what he says when, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, there's a lot of people that take that passage. <laughs> yeah. And really what, what it's saying is you have the truth to go in and it will open up people's hearts. This is about giving truth to the lost. And if you know, you can say, you know, if you trust in Christ, your sins will be forgiven. Now all of a sudden, in that bondage that they, they were in, they're now freed. That's happened to every one of us. That's exactly it. This happened to us. We were bound and the keys of the kingdom, the, the gospel, was brought in and somebody told us that and we realized that we were forgiven. Man, that's, and we can do that you know, every time we come together, you know, like that, realizing we are forgiven and we have been set free. And so we too have the keys of the kingdom to set people free. But we don't have it. That's right. It's the Word of God. And that's the weapon that we have. You just plant the seed. You can't even plant the seed anywhere. God's got to lead you to the right fertile ground. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's like a sword. It's God's job. It's definitely God's job to let the Spirit water the seed. Because, you know, we just give it out, we toss it out, and if it lands on good soil, then it will grow. If it doesn't, then the devil comes snatch it out, or people will receive it and be all hyped up, and then when the world comes and starts persecuting them, or they start getting in trouble for their faith, then they just thorns and thistles choke them out. Mm-hmm. Yep, so, it's, it's great. Isn't it great? We don't have to do a whole lot, just throw it out there. And see what he does. I'm trying to find the verse that says, uh, I'm pretty sure it's in Romans. I can't find it. It says that uh, expose, you know, sin, bring the sin to light, like expose it so that people that are sleeping will wake up. Because a lot of people don't believe, like, the what sin is, they, they've already mowed over that moral line. So you, you let them know that, no, there is a moral line. And everything that's on the one side is sin, and then everything on the other side is not. And so you expose what sin is, not in a way to condemn people or to judge them for their sin, because, you know, Romans says, who are you who judge? Because you're guilty of the same thing. God is the one who will judge, but we're to expose it. We're supposed to let them know that this, just because you want to do it, doesn't mean it's right to do doesn't mean that it's good just because you want it to be good. Maybe it is if we pray about it. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. Well, 
Um, you know, there's probably all sorts of voices that would be like to be telling us. There's other kind of weapons, you know. We uh, we could use the weapons that the world uses. Intelligence. Um, we could use our own intelligence. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we've yeah. got that, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> but. Um, so don't ever lose faith in the battle plan that God has. We saw what He did there, there with Joshua. So we're not done with that section yet. But anyway, the power of God's Word in proclaiming the truth, in preaching the truth, in evangelism, just proclaiming the name of Christ. Uh, there's a lot of voices out there saying, hey, listen, you know what? That Bible stuff that you're doing there, you're not going to gain a crowd out of that. It's old-fashioned. It's out of date. It doesn't work anymore. You know, it, 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 it doesn't attract people. You know, it doesn't win the victory. So, you know, you, you really need to try some different things. And you know what? It, it's tried and it's true. It's a trusted weapon. It's the only weapon that we really have. It's the Word of God. Yeah, but they all do watch the church do all that. They do all these other techniques. They do. Them, yeah. or are they are they really the church? Well, <coughs> if they are, they do, they do. They the last thing they ever use is the word of God, and the word of God is the only thing that's going to withstand all the trials and tests that they will go through. And if they don't have it, they feel themselves to find sand. Well, there's the idea that you have to play friendly right. to get the people in there. But so then they get the people in there, and they still don't tell them the truth. I think, you know, milk and honey is good yeah. for a time. But I think once you kind of like, a, you know, if you can gain a crowd off the milk and honey, then you just throw it on And then you just watch them. Yeah, but they even, don't. Even Jesus But they that. don't. I mean, yeah, that's yeah, the they don't. They, they fill their <laughs> churches up, and they program. never get full back of, to the truth. Full of programs. Yeah. They, yeah. Yes, they and play all, you all the worldly people, games. All you have is people doing the program that they were doing, but they never, very few of them, really totally understand the truth because they don't want to offend. As soon as you tell somebody, you know, that's a sin, <gasps> you offended me. Well, yeah, that's the point. There is a point that you will have to be offended so that you can receive the truth because you have to point out you are living in sin. Mm -hmm. And if they will sit there and say, yeah. So what? And he said, so because you live in sin, you are separated from the Holy God. And you have no salvation. You're lost in your sins and your trespasses. So you've got to get to the point that you've got to tell people that they're living in sin. Better off doing it early in the conversation yeah. because you do it too far down the conversation and it's all just confused with... Well, well there never is a perfect time. That's right. And if you don't just come right out with the truth, there never is a perfect time to get back to the truth. And they might... So you got to get the truth all the, time, all the time. time. But they might not like you for a while after you do it, but you know what? It, res it stays. And if they are his, they'll come back if around. If they are his. Yeah. If you're his, they will come back around. Maybe not even to you. Maybe you'll be one more person. person. Right. You might be one more right. person that's that step. Yeah. That's realizing the power of God's Word. It does do its job. Let's go to number 2. Verse uh, 18. The Lord said to Joshua, <laughs> Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I'll give it into your hand. So Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. The men in ambush rose quickly from their place, and when he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they quickly set the city on fire. 
when the men of Ai turned back and looked, behold, the smoke of the city ascended to the sky and they had no place to flee this way or that. For the people who had been fleeing to the wilderness, our guys, turned against the pursuers when Joshua and all Israel saw that the men in ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city ascended. They turned back and slew the men of Ai. The others came out from the city to encounter them, so that they were trapped in the midst of Israel, some on the side and some on that side, and they slew them until no one was left of those who survived or escaped. But they took alive the king of Ai and brought him to Joshua. Now when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the field in the wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them were fallen by the edge of the sword until they were destroyed, then all Israel returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. All who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not withdraw his hand, with which he stretched out the javelin, until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Are we getting this? (laughs) Israel took only the cattle and the spoil of that city as plunder for themselves. They didn't take any captives. According to the word of the Lord, which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation until this day. He hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua gave command. They took his body down from the tree, threw it at the entrance of the gate, and raised over it a great heap of stones that stands to this day. The judgment is the Lord's. So, who wrote Joshua? Joshua. Okay, so at the time that Joshua is writing this... Do we know, like, maybe he's writing it during the time that all this is taking place? Later on, on. he he puts all this together, everything that God had told him and what what they had done. There's his commands and there's here's the actions of it, and God inspires him to write this in in this accuracy. Okay. Yeah. Just kind of a question: Do we know if Joshua wrote it himself or if he had like writers? Like he told them and they wrote it. I didn't think he probably pinned it down himself. Okay. He could have had, like Paul wrote those letters, but for the most part, he didn't write them with his own hand. Right. He yeah. had other people to right. write that out, but it all came from his mouth, which is he's inspired by God as he puts that out. And of course, they put it down. I think one thing that's interesting, though, is Joshua chose three. 30,000 mighty men, and all the people of AI are just 12,000. Yeah. It's like all the women like and the men, like they don't even compare in like, even in like portion-wise. Yeah. <laughs> you got yeah. 30,000 just men, fighting men, and then 12,000 in total of AI. Yeah, but they didn't know there were 30,000. They thought there were 5,000. 5,000? <laughs> <laughs> we could take 5,000, John. <laughs> Probably where they're cutting. <laughs> 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 One thing I do think is kind of interesting, though, is that this battle they get to keep all the treasure. Yeah. They get to keep the livestock. They get to, and if the family before 
had just not just, they yeah. had an abundance they more. just trusted the Lord that's, that's interesting isn't it a lot of times haven't we said oh if I would have just waited right. why did I try to rush it along uh, yeah I think that's a good lesson right there. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> hey, have we been there before? Yeah. You know what? This story right here in this section that we just read, we could try to clean it up. We could try to kind of help God here make it look a little bit better because He looks really bad here doing this. This is God's plan. War is horrible. It's terrible. It's ugly. It's death. It's bloodshed. It's just out and out mayhem. It's, it's horrible. And that's what we've got here in this section. Again, somebody can say, what are you reading the book of Joshua for? It's a lot of battles in there and a lot of war. You know, it's rather unique. It's a holy war against the Canaanites. And you either accept biblical revelation or you don't. We have to. I hate war. The Canaanites came from Noah's son, Shem? Or was it... Yeah, yeah. Was there was Shem, which is the Semites, which would uh, entail the Israelites, and, and you know, that Middle East part, and then, of course, yeah, yeah Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, Ham was then, there was a descendant of the, that's the Canaanites. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? So... <clears throat> What you have here is Genesis 15.10, which we pointed out before, but let's go back there. This is a covenant that God makes with Abraham. He does it in chapter 12. Then in chapter 15, He reiterates that covenant. And He gets to... uh, Let's see, what is it? Uh, Verse 16, right? Then in the fourth generation... They will return here, the Israelites, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. That means there's more iniquity that they're going to do until Israel comes back. They're there. They're back in the land. It's time to do it. Uh, The iniquity of the Amorites is now full. It's done. The justification of the Israelites conquering Canaan has to do with God's judgment on Canaan. It had reached such a sinful peak. They, we just don't understand how bad people can be and sin reached its peak. It was ripe to be taken over. It's time to be harvested. And that's what God already said. Wow. No survivors... Wiped them all out. And then you have this king. And they take him. It's the only one that they haven't killed yet. It wasn't long. But they hang him. It's kind of like a disgrace. It's like a curse. He's under the curse of God. He's a representative of what the sin is as it's, as it's reached its apex. The fulfillment of it all. And he happens to be that guy as he's captured hang him on a tree they leave him there until nightfall take his body down and leave leave his body outside the city and there's a heap of stones over him kind of I guess like a memorial there 
the roar of a memorial that, hey, this is what, how God took this city here. What's going on here? Well, you know, um, back in the book of Deuteronomy and Moses' law, God gave that law that anyone taken by capital offense could be hung on a tree until nightfall. And that was the law. It was supposed to be a deterrent. You know, that's, that's a pretty gruesome way to, uh, to go, isn't it? It seems rather barbaric, doesn't it? Yeah, it is. It is very barbaric. What's going on here? What are we to make of this? What's that? They wouldn't read this part, would they? They don't know the character of God. I'm a jealous and angry guy. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's right. And so that now he's doing it, and he's doing it with his people. This man was under the curse of God, as all the Canaanites are. They're under the curse of God. I don't ever want to be under the curse of God. Yet most people are under the curse of God. Jesus was under the curse of God. That's how serious this is. This is what's going on here. Uh, You know, you can't read this story without being reminded that Jesus was hung upon the cross, wasn't He? Uh, Outside the walls of Jerusalem, and uh, they nailed Him to that cross, that Roman cross, and put nails in His hands, and of course the suffering that He went through, and his feet, put nails in, propped him up in the air, they put a crown of thorns on his head, they mocked him and spat in his face. And we look at Galatians 3.13. Speaking of the curse, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ, Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus was under the curse, just like the Amorites, the Canaanites, Especially this king is representing on the other side of how cursed he was. And Jesus took on the curse of our sin there. That is rather, I think, humbling to us, isn't it? Uh, Psalm 22.1, what did Jesus say that David had said? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, he was forsaken because he'd been made a what? A curse. God had made him a curse. And, uh, you know, that uh, blessing that uh, we often read, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. What's that called? Blessing. Jesus was under the curse. 
and the Lord shut out His presence from His own Son whenever that happened. And He poured out on His Son His wrath and anger so that Jesus, as He takes His place of the wicked and the people that are damned and the ones who He wants to redeem, there He is doing it. And so Jesus experienced that curse that sinners like us deserve. So just as the king of Ai is hung upon a tree, you know, and, and staying there till nightfall, they did this to Jesus. Although they took him off the cross before night came, because the Passover was going to start at that time. Anyway. Yeah, uh, the Sabbath, I'm sorry. That was during the Passover week there, yeah. But yeah, he was the Passover, wasn't it? That was the Passover that was going to start. The, uh, but the uh, yeah, Sabbath was coming also. That was the Sabbath of Sabbaths. It would be Sabbath in a Sabbath. How horrible. How repulsive is it to see a corpse hanging on a tree? He'd take great joy in that. No. A lot of people did. Westerns. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Why? Maybe, or do people really? I guess the same thing. Like the Romans, Romans Coliseum, right. just morbid people. Well, like even the nature. nature of man. Yeah. For some reason, I can't imagine it. Whenever they would have a stoning, there was a big crowd. Always there. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing. It was a great deterrent to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, can't, I, I wouldn't want to be there. Yeah, I would not want not, to see that. No, that's true. Society that's like true. that, though. But if that's what anybody that was done, then that was kind of like <coughs> God wanted them to... I mean, I mean that was a judgment. They would, they would do it, yeah, but it was like God made the judgment of letting them die from there, I guess. I mean, your parents would teach you that that's okay. Like, your parents would teach you that... Like, I'm certain that That's your just parents how the law was done. That's, how you, that's what right. you did. Parents taught their children, and then, grandparents taught so grandkids. So, if that had been done mm-hmm. to your people in another nation, then that opportunity was there to do it to them. That was corp- that was the law. Mm-hmm. That's just how it was dealt with. So then the kid that had to watch the guy hanging on the tree, he raised his kids so he would, they wouldn't have to see that. Because he knew or, better. That yeah. or, you know... <laughs> Right? Tell them yeah. that that's, that's the way we happened. did. That's that's how we have become so far removed from what God had planned because mm-hmm. mom and dad had a better idea. We'll keep the kids from this. Yeah. Stuff. We don't. They don't have to see that stuff. Uh, yeah. Well, we see the Son of God. There he is, hanging on the cross, because sin is repulsive, isn't it? That's what God. That's what sin deserves. Last part. This is the dandy part of it all. This is really good. God sets right here at the end of this chapter something that is... uh, It's awesome. You you guys ready? This is great. And you're probably wondering, what's going on here? This is beautiful. This is the best news you could hear. It's great. Did we see a little picture of what that was all about? God has to punish sin. 
And he has them hanging on a cross, but it's pointing to the biggest picture of all, Christ hanging on that cross, right? As it crossed, he was on a, hung up on a tree. Verse 30, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal. Hang that. An altar on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. He wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. All Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native. Half of them stood in front of the Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. Then afterward... He read all the words of the law, the blessing, and the curse according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. Beautiful. This is Deuteronomy 27 and 28. And suddenly the scene just changes drastically. So we had the guy, you know, hung, right? Now, you move 20, not 20 miles north from the city of Ai to another city called Shechem. Now, you've already gone 20 miles, I think, from where you had been. Anyway, you can imagine, I think uh, it was also about 20 miles from Jerusalem, or it's north of Jerusalem anyway. This AI is. Yeah, it's a good time to get a map out if you if you got it. This is funny. The maps in my Bible, the one in Joshua and the one in Deuteronomy, are the same map. Is that right? Yeah. That's uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so, do you get the idea what's going on here? You have um, they've marched all the way up to Shechem. Matter of fact, you've got all the men, women, children, all of them now. Now, a lot of them, you know, the the the, the, the women, the children, they were back in Gilgal. Remember the camp that was just before uh, Jericho? That's up north. And that's that's north. well, they would have been a little south, right? Not according to this map. Uh, okay. Okay, they come. Come uh, around there. Let's see. Uh, uh, Which is north? Okay, of yeah. You've, okay, you got Jericho and then Gilgal's a little bit north from there, right? Mm-hmm. And then you've got AI to the west of Jericho and Gilgal. And then you go 20 miles north, and you get Shechem there. After you've seen I AI and Bethel. Ai and Bethel really were kind of like twin towns there, I guess you could say. So now that that's where they're all at, and they've they've marched up there. There's two huge mountains 
there now. One is called Mount Gerizim. That's the mount that represents blessing, which is Deuteronomy 27. And then you have Mount Ebal, which is representing cursing, which is found in Deuteronomy 28. Okay, so one is going to be called a mount of blessing. The other one's going to be the mount of cursing. All the people are camped there, half of them on one side to the mountain of one, half of them on another one. And in between all of this is the Ark of the Covenant. You have a great worship scene set here. And you have the Levitical priests that are representing the presence of God right there as the, the Ark is there. And... Um, it's a strange ritual that's going on. It is. Go to Deuteronomy 27. This is cool. And God is... It's like a, one side reads blessing and the other side reads a curse. Uh-huh. How cool is that? Now, are you at Deuteronomy 27 yet? That is awesome. Look at this. I wonder about who these soldiers are, these strangers that are. Yeah, who's hanging around them guys? <laughs> Those Israelites. Okay. Deuteronomy 27 1. Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. Okay, watch this now. So it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you that you shall set up for yourself large stones and that's what he tells him in Joshua uh, write on them all the words of this law every bit of it when you cross over so that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you a land flowing with milk and honey uh, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you, so it shall be. When you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal all these stones. It's on Mount Ebal. What is that? Blessing or cursing? Ebal is the blessing. It's Ebal is cursing. These stones, and you'll get it, as I'm commanding you today, and you shall coat them with lime. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God. So there's going to be an altar on this cursing uh, mountain, uh, uncut stones, burnt offerings, it says, sacrifice, peace offerings in verse 7. That's exactly what Joshua has been talking about. We don't have time to read all this, but you know what? By the way, you get the cursings first. Uh, like, uh, let's look at uh, verse 13. For the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, and all that. Uh, verse 15. Cursed is the man who makes an idol or molten image. Or 16. Cursed is one who dishonors his father or mother. 17. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark. On and on, cursings. Chapter 28, look at verse 3. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body. 5. Blessed be your basket and your kneading bowl. You know, on and on are blessings. You know, the uh, so produce, uh, the barns, rain. He's talking about blessings at Mount Gerizim. Ebal is the cursings. What's going on? Well, 
And she has this worship of God here. The people of God are obedient. God will bless them. He says, you know, if you're obedient, I'll give you food, I'll give you health, I will give you long life, I will give you family privileges. You know, just great blessings. But, you'll be cursed if you're disobedient. So it's a covenant renewal worship service. What are the people saying? Yes, we will do what you command us, right? We will be obedient. Now remember, in the midst of a warrior, God is saying, I want you to stop. I want you to pause. I want you to wait here. See, they've already won two battles now. And they're in the middle of Canaan. And this is where they're going to have to continue on. They're not done fighting yet. But he says, stop now. Here's what I want you to do. This is the most important thing you can do is remember, I want your obedience. So, and, and of course they're saying, yes, Lord, it's, it's our desire. It's our longing to be obedient. We want to be that way so much, right? And wherever you lead us, we will go. And their eyes are drawn away from Mount Gerizim, the blessing mountain, and their eyes drift towards the other mountain. Why would that be? Well, it says, you know, at the top of Mount Ebal, there's an altar. And there's sacrifices, there's peace offerings, and burnt offerings. Burnt offerings are the ones that uh, where you have animal sacrifice and you burn it completely up. And the aroma goes to God. Sweet smelling aroma, right? And then there's peace offerings, which is you share some with God and then you also eat and partake of that also. That's the peace offerings. So they're having both. Smoke is rising up into the air. As they're promising obedience, their eyes are drawn away and they see this smoke going up. And it's rising up to the mountain of the cursing Ebal, right? It was an altar there on that Mount Ebal. Is there an altar on Gerizim? No. Because from Mount Ebal, the curse was to come upon uh, anybody who is disobedient, it's, it's dealing with sin. There's smoke rising, and a giant object lesson is here. I know that you will fail me. They've always said, we will follow you, we will do whatever you say. I know God is saying, I know that what you're saying, you mean it right now, that you want to be obedient. But you know what? I know you won't be obedient. I know that you're going to fail me. You will fail me again and again and again and again. But from that mountain, and now remember there's there's not a, a an altar on the mountain of blessing, okay? But there's this mountain of cursing where this is. And at that mountain there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. They're looking at that mountain that they, they want to be obedient, but they can't. Nobody can be righteous on their own, can they? Um, 
Have you heard this one? There's a green hill far away outside the city wall where my dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all. That's what those mountains are all about. We cannot be obedient to satisfy Him, but there was one who was, right? And what you're getting at really right there is a glimpse of the cross, a glimpse of forgiveness, because the altar there is showing that God is satisfied with the offering, the offering of Christ. That's how come we get the blessings, because Jesus took the curse, and we get the blessing. And as we look at that, the altar is where the cross and you remember that that peace offering when we take the Lord's communion, did you know what we're doing there? That offering is something we are partaking of in the sense that we get to eat of that. Isn't that amazing? And he said, do this in remembrance of me. It's because of Christ's obedience is that we get in on this and we get the blessing. So it's like a peace offering. Yes. That has already been done by Christ. And as they are there, they were told to do that in Deuteronomy long before they were there. And then all of a sudden, there they are there. And God tells Joshua and Joshua, hey, this is what we got to do. And there they are representing really what it's all about is Christ. It's a picture of Christ. Isn't that amazing? It's magnificent. It's a weird, kind of different kind of chapter. Isn't it, isn't it kind of strange? It's a glimpse of the cross, the way of forgiveness, blessing. But no altar on the blessing. It's been taken care of on that blessing of cursing. Because there has to be a blood sacrifice done constantly so that we can keep getting the blessings. Right. And of course, the blood sacrifice was finally completed at the cross. Yeah. Anyway, is that chapter something else? It's beautiful, isn't it? And it all started with, don't be fearing, don't be dismayed. Folks, we have all the weapons and everything we ever need. It's all been done. We have forgiveness. We have this news, good news to offer. Man, I'm telling you, that's out of the Old Testament. And we see the wrath of God there. And we see the forgiveness of God for His people. But the wrath of God came upon the ones who did not want Him. They wanted other gods. What's that? They said it makes me think of Ezekiel when he was told to speak. He said, not to fear the 